All right, we're going to continue our series walking through the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 11 this morning, so if you have a physical Bible or if you've got a device, you want to turn or swipe there, you can do that. While you're finding it, just going to give us a quick intro here to catch us up to speed. So, since chapter 1, when... Uh, John begins to write about Jesus to communicate who he is. Since basically Jesus came onto the scene, a big piece of what John is doing is he's revealing who Jesus is. He's revealing this is what Jesus came to do. And we see this in John the Baptist as well. He's talking about who Jesus is. He's the Lamb of God who has come to forgive the sins of the world. And as we continue to walk through chapters in the gospel, we see Jesus continually revealing himself more and more. We get this broader picture that's being built and constructed. And as there's more revelation, we also find that there's more opposition to Jesus as well, to the point where, where we're at in the story right now, there's been basically an arrest warrant put out on him. Uh, the religious leaders would like to see him uh, taken into custody, um, and yet Jesus continually is doing what he has come to do. And so it's not surprising that we would see as, as the gospel moves forward that there's kind of more tension and there's more climax that's happening. And, and that's what we see this morning, kind of the climactic sign within the gospel, uh, and that is resurrection. And it's it's going to pull us forward. It's pointing us forward to Jesus' resurrection. But today we get to look at the resurrection of Lazarus. So last week uh, we ended in verse uh, 27. Um, Jesus had asked Martha this question, Do you believe? And Martha had responded to Jesus saying, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God who is coming into the world. And so right on the heels of that is where we're going to pick up this morning. Martha's profession of belief in Jesus. And then we're going to pick up in verse 28 here. When Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to Jesus. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And Jesus said, Where have you laid Lazarus? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. 
Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. So I don't know if you picked up on this, but especially in the first half of these verses, there's this strong emphasis of weeping. Everybody's weeping. Jesus, the onlookers, Martha and Mary, it's, it's just rampant. And, and, you know, it's interesting how um, things just work out. Uh, so for me this week, as I'm preparing this sermon, like I've cried more in the last week and a half than I have, and I don't know how long, and I'm like, I can't get away from it, right? Like I'm crying, I'm looking, reading here, and I'm studying, everybody's crying here, I just can't escape it. But um, there's so much that's been good for me. Uh, this has preached to me really well this week, and my hope is it'll preach really well to you guys this morning as well. So one quick note here on just the transition between verses 27 and 28. 28. I just want to make a quick comment here on core values of Center Church. So our three core values are gospel, community, and mission. We talk here about how the gospel creates community. It's kind of this inward focus, and then the gospel compels mission, kind of the external focus. And, and so we end every sermon here at Center Church with this call to increasing belief in the gospel. Everything starts with Jesus. So we want to call all of ourselves to believe the gospel increasingly because as we believe it, we'll be called to engage in community and to go to others, to live on mission, to hope in what Jesus has done. Not in what we do, but to hope in what Jesus has done for us. And in verses 27 and 28, I think we see this paradigm kind of depicted. Or 27, 28. Martha, what we find here in verse 27, what I, those, the verse that I read, that she's professing belief in Jesus. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. But then, out of that belief, she's compelled. She's compelled, in a sense, a form of mission. And the mission here is she's going to her sister to bring comfort to her, to call her to Jesus. And, and this is a great picture of what we're called to as well. We put our roots down deep in the gospel, and then as we believe, we're sent out and we call others to Jesus as well. And so in the same way we see this happening in this story, this, this small, subtle transition of verses 27 to 28, it's a great picture of how we're called to live the Christian life day in and day out. Okay, verse 28. We get this I think, personal and caring glimpse of Jesus. So the subtitle of our series is, Who is Jesus? 
And one, one picture we get here of who Jesus is, that he's compassionate and he is caring. So Martha goes to Mary in private, and he lets her know that Jesus has called for her. And, and I think this is speaking to Jesus' kindness because he's taking into account Mary's state, where she's at. So we read, or last week, uh, as Dan was preaching, he was saying how Martha ran to Jesus. He went, she went to him, but Mary, she stayed back. And, and we don't know everything that's going on in, in Mary's mind. Why did she ba- stay back? Why did she not run to Jesus? We don't know everything for sure, but the fact that she stayed behind, combined with her comment to Jesus in verse 32, as she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think, at least if I put myself in that position, I could feel resentment in my heart. Like, Jesus, why didn't you do something? You, you could have done something about this. And, and I don't want to put this on Mary, because maybe that's not what's happening, but I think it's a very possible, uh, it, it's, pos- it's a possibility for her that, that she was feeling that at some level. And, and so for her, it's almost as though she's, she knows that Jesus could have done something, but he chose not to do it. And so I think with all of this considered, like the reality is is that Jesus is caring for her really well. He's sending her sister to her to talk to her in private so that she can be called to him so that he can talk to her in private so that he can care for her. He can extend compassion to her. He can have kind of this one-on-one with her. So we see this personal caring glimpse of Jesus in verse 28. And then Dan mentioned last week that there's this flow of people that's happening from Jerusalem to Bethany to where Lazarus' home, and it suggests that uh, this family is well-known and that they were well-to-do. And I think we see some similar care in verse 31. So Mary gets up and she moves, and the people think that she's moving from the house to the tomb. She's going there to weep. And so what they're going to do is they're going to follow her. They didn't want her to grieve alone, to weep alone. And so what we see them doing is they're pursuing Mary. They're consoling her. They're weeping with those who are weeping. And I think it's really powerful because we see this is what Jesus is doing as well. He's pursuing. He's consoling. He is literally weeping with those who are weeping. He's embodying the gospel. The, the, the gospel story is kind of being written and told. At this moment, we see it being embodied, and I think that this is instructive for us. As Jesus Church, those of us who are followers of Jesus today, John thirteen thirty five says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. People will know that we are followers of Jesus by our love for one another. And there's a massive call in that for us. So Mary goes to Jesus and she falls before him, most likely weeping, distressed, grieving because of what's happened with her brother, questioning uh, what's, what's going on and why everything happened. And I think in her actions, in her response, there's almost the, the why 
of Jesus in action. This question of why. Why didn't Jesus act is almost implied here. So Jesus asks where Lazarus is buried. And on the way to Lazarus' grave, it says in verse 35 that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now there's tons that could be said about this reaction of Jesus. The, the Jews who are watching this seem impressed by how much Jesus loved Lazarus. And so I think it's a good question for us to ask ourselves, like, what impresses us about Jesus weeping? Or maybe more appropriately, what should impress us about Jesus weeping? In what way should this impress our hearts? There's two observations I want to make this morning about this reality that Jesus is weeping here in this instance. The first of all pertains to Jesus' humanness. Uh, the fact that he deals with people in a very personal way. People oftentimes talk about this is how we see Jesus' humanity. He's crying in the same way that we cry. We can understand uh, his tears because we weep in these ways as well. As well. So what, what we see is we know that Jesus loved Lazarus. We know that he loved these sisters of Lazarus. So what's going on here is he's hurting. He's grieving with them. He's identifying with these people in the midst of their mourning, and he's taking upon himself the, their same mourning. He's sharing their grief with them. He is shedding actual tears. So Jesus is in this with them. He is right there feeling what they're feeling. So as we see this happening with Jesus in this story, this should carry over to our lives to an extent as well, to our experiences, to understand that he meets us in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our pain and our heartache. He is there with us. So when tears run down your cheeks, or, or maybe when you sob uncontrollably, or if you're just not the emotional type, when you feel deep hurt within you, do you believe that Jesus cares about that? That he is near to you? When you feel these things or walk through deep valleys, do you ever doubt his involvement in that valley, that he's walking with you? Do doubts nag at you? Some of us, uh, maybe all of us at times, and for various reasons, can view God as being just distant and cold, right? Like he's this cosmic God, this being who's up there, but he's not like someone who walks right next to me. He's way out there. He's distant. He's cold. He's uninvolved. He's uncaring. And, and we can view him almost like as a rock. He's depicted or described as a rock in Scripture, and some of us can take that to his emotions as well, right? Like he's as emotional as a rock. But this glimpse that we get of Jesus here really pushes against that idea that he's not involved, that he's not emotional in whatever it is that we'll walk through. Jesus cares. He cares deeply. He is invested. He feels 
loss in a way that we feel loss, maybe in even greater ways. Hebrews 4.15 speaks to Jesus being someone who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Jesus sympathizes with us. He identifies with us in the midst of our weaknesses. Psalm 34.18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. This psalm, this this isn't a promise for people thousands of years ago that isn't relevant today. The Lord draws near to the brokenhearted. This is as true today as it was when it was written. Now, speaking for myself, I will cry for a variety of reasons. Sometimes I just feel sorry for myself. There's that reality. Sometimes I will cry because I feel sorrow for others and what they are walking through. Sometimes I cry because I'm thankful and, and like I'm happy about something that's uh, occurred. And I w- that will cause me to cry as well. But I think one thing that sticks out to me here about the fact that Jesus is crying is noticing that it's happening as he's entering into the sadness of others. His sadness, his weeping is directly connected to the sadness and weeping of others. He knows these people. He loves these people. And and this is instructive for us. Our love for others, our ability to empathize with others, to feel what others feel, to take upon our shoulders what others are carrying on their shoulders. Our ability to do this is directly connected to our knowing people, our investing in people, our engaging in their lives. So if we keep at a distance, if we stiff-arm people, then we're going to be able to engage to that degree as well. But if we're able to embrace and draw near to people, we will be able to invest in them and love them in ways that are meaningful, more meaningful. So part of the reason that Jesus is weeping is because of his love for these people. He knows them. He cares deeply. And so when he enters into this reality, he sees what's going on. He feels what they're feeling. And I think what part of what makes Jesus' response here even more meaningful, at least to me, is that His response is with the knowledge that Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead, right? He knows that's going to happen. He's already declared, this is going to be so. But yet, we don't find him in any way just rushing through this, raising him from the dead. We don't find him just minimizing the grief, like, ah, it's not that big of a deal, right? Like, it's all going to be okay. Like, have you ever told someone that in the midst? Like, it'll all be okay. Like, you don't know, right? But he's not doing that. He's entering into their grief. There's no chiding. What we see in Jesus is true compassion. And so, for us, as we trust Jesus, we have to remember whether we're in a a valley or a mountaintop. Like, Jesus never leaves us. Jesus never 
forsakes us. He is with us, not to patronize us at all, not just to pat us on the head, but to love us, to care deeply for us. This is true today, wherever you're at, this is true even in those moments when you will feel like he's distant, like he is far off, when things aren't, when circumstances aren't what you would want them to be. He is still near. He is the one who not, who, he, he doesn't leave us. We are the ones who will separate from him. Our sin causes us to stiff arm him, to push away from his table. And so we need to remind ourselves of this promise. Because there will be days, and you will walk through seasons where God's presence won't be near to you. And you need to know this. You need to preach this to yourself. Jesus never leaves me. Jesus does not forsake me. He is here. He is near. He is walking with me. Praise his name. Believe in his goodness. So, we look at this whole setting, setting, especially the first half of these verses, and, and what we see is like this just complete sob fest, right? I mentioned this earlier, but everybody is crying. They're mourning. And so if we just step back here and we remind ourselves what Jesus is doing, it, it kind of creates this really stark contrast. You remember at the beginning of this story, Jesus is saying that this illness does not lead to death. It is to display the glory of God. Okay? So in the midst of tears running, flowing like a river, we have to remind ourselves God is going to display his glory. That is what he is going to accomplish. And, and anyone looking at this situation would be like, huh? Uh-uh. No. But, and, and even like, think about this situation, right? If you think about um, our, your own lives and maybe situations that you've seen, and, and I'm not saying like our family has not experienced this, but maybe you've been in a scenario like this. Or it's a scenario where you just want to avoid because you don't know what to do. You don't know the questions to ask. You don't know what to say. And it feels awkward for you to enter into someone, else, someone else's grief. Sad situations for us to enter into them, it's going to be costly. It's going to be hard. And it's probably going to be awkward at times. Because death is dark, right? Death and its traces, it's dark. But this is where glory and light will shine the brightest. Death, darkness provides this contrast to the light of this world, to Jesus' glory. And it's oftentimes in these ugliest, messiest of situations where glory will pop the most. And the reality is, oftentimes, we'll try to avoid those situations. But it's those situations that most need the glimpses of Jesus, where Jesus' glory can be seen and felt in the greatest of ways. Okay, so this first observation regarding Jesus' weeping has to do with his personal investment, his love for these people that he knows really well. The second observation is actually really difficult to see in our English translations of our Bibles. But I think it is so important to highlight this 
because it helps to tie this event, the resurrection of Lazarus, with everything else that Jesus has come to do and his teachings and the teachings of the rest of the New Testament as well. So in verse 38, it says there that Jesus is deeply moved. So there's a Greek verb there um, that's being translated deeply moved. This also, this same verb is uh, used in verse 33 as well. So when we read this, as an English reader, what we read is Jesus cares deeply, right? Like that's what we read. When I, when I read that at face value, I read Jesus cares deeply about these people and about what's going on. And that's not inaccurate at all. But the verb that's being used there is much more visceral. Much more visceral. So what's being communicated in this verb is anger. Jesus is indignant. He's actually irate. And you, you think about that, it's like, whoa. In this situation, Jesus is outraged. Why? What is he outraged about? Well, we need to understand that this outrage that Jesus is feeling is connected to his weeping. And, and this is where I want to make this next observation. But, but we have to ask ourselves, like, what does this mean? Why is Jesus angry? Who is he angry at? Or, or what is he angry about? So, in this situation, we see death, right? We see sickness. And, and in this, these are results of sin in our world. But what we also see here, which isn't as naturally apparent in, in a surface reading, is that we find Jesus angry with various forms of unbelief. We find Jesus outraged at various forms of unbelief. So in this setting, grief is appropriate. Grief is healthy. Jesus is grieving, but not grief to the point that would suggest that we have no hope. As 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Jesus has previously said, This illness does not lead to death. And he also said that Lazarus will rise again. But in the course of these verses that remain, there are these hints of hopelessness, hints of unbelief. And I'm not saying that the unbelief is just pervasive, but there's at least hints of this. And so I'm going to read three verses here that kind of hint at unbelief or hopelessness. First, in verse 32, Mary is saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So uh, we see in Mary both belief and unbelief. We see belief. She believes Jesus could do something, right? If he had been there, he could have done something about this. So there's belief, but there's also unbelief. But because you were not here, he has died. And in that, there is despair for her. So there's hints of unbelief in what Mary is saying. The Jews, in verse 37, it 
it, uh, they're saying, basically collectively, almost chiding Jesus, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Why didn't he do that? If he could do it, why did he not do that? And then Martha in verse 39. Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. So Jesus has previously had a conversation with Martha saying that uh, Lazarus will be raised from the dead. And she says, I know at the last day he'll be raised from the dead. And, and Jesus is speaking much more immediately. He's going to be raised from the dead now. And she is in this statement disbelieving. No, he's, he's been dead four days. He's going to have this stank. We don't want to open that up. And so she's almost saying, don't open. Don't open the grave up. Don't roll that stone away. And so Jesus is grieved. But part of his grief here is unbelief. The unbelief of people is causing his grief. Unbelief is prompting his outrage. And the reason for this is because he knows that unbelief is what will destroy these people. And unbelief is what will destroy you and I as well, today and eternally. And we have to see, part of the reason why I want to push on this belief and unbelief is because what happens next. John is just going to keep pressing the issue in the words that he's recording about Jesus. In verses 40 to 42, Jesus says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? you believe in me, you will see the glory of God. And then he continues, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me because he knows that there is still aspects, hints of unbelief in their hearts and he wants them to believe fully in who he is and what he has come to do. So Jesus continually is grinding at this so that people would believe in him. What angers, what grieves Jesus is unbelief in people because he knows that that is separating them from him. It's eating away at their belief in him and ultimately it will destroy them. Dan mentioned this verse from the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 last week, which basically states the purpose of the whole Gospel of John. It's written, the Gospel of John is written, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, like Martha's profession that she had just uh, previously made, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, that we would have life in Jesus' name. Life like Lazarus now experiences as he's raised from the dead. Resurrection power that raised Lazarus from being a dead individual to now being an individual who walks out of a grave. And that's what we find that Jesus calls out Lazarus and he walks out of the grave. The dead man lives again. And this is why we can and we should believe in Jesus, because nothing compares to him. 
Nothing compares to that power that a man can call a dead person out of a grave and have him walk again. Nothing can stop Jesus' power. There is none like him. And so as we look at the story of Lazarus and we see Jesus taking this man who was lifeless and breathless and he breathes life and breath back into him, we need to see there what Jesus does to spiritually dead people. That's what's happened in my life. I was dead. I couldn't get up and spiritually walk. Jesus breathed life into me. And now I stand and I exclaim like Lazarus did. I am alive. I am spiritually alive. And this is the story of many of you as well. And this is the story that we, we should desire that would be carried out in the lives of those around us, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in whatever context we find ourselves walking into, that Jesus would call people out of spiritual tombs and he would raise them to life. Okay, four points of gospel application for us this morning. First of all, there is more than our physical existence. Looking at this story, what Jesus is doing here, it speaks to the reality that there is more than just this that we're experiencing here this morning. Think about Lazarus. Do you think that he felt any disappointment? Like he, his sister believed in the resurrection, right? So I assume that Lazarus also believed in the resurrection. So he gets called out of the grave, right? And he sees all these people and you wonder, like, is this heaven? Is this it? Is this the resurrection? And then it's like, no, this is, this is where I was. I got to die again? Like, I've got to go through this thing again? Like, how disappointed he possibly was if he believed in a resurrection. But what we need to understand here is Lazarus is an exception. He's an exception, okay? We don't see throughout the Bible all these people dying and being raised to life again in a physical capacity. So this points to the fact that there's something more. There's something greater. Because if this is what it was all about, Jesus would continually raise people back to life again, right? But he doesn't. Because there's more. There's something beyond this. And what we find throughout Scripture is that the fact that Jesus doesn't raise people back to physical life never diminishes God's goodness. And so we know from the story of Lazarus that what we see and experience on a daily basis, there is more. So much more. Which is, it should incite hope in us. Even in the midst of death. Even in the midst of tragedy that we can be people who have hope no matter what. So there's more than our physical existence. Secondly, God is good. God is good. A big encouragement I have for you guys this morning is that you would settle the goodness of God in your heart and mind. And you would begin that today. Wherever you're at, if you feel like you're settled there, you know it, that you would settle that reality, that truth, all the more. That God is good, that he doesn't leave you, that he doesn't forsake you, 
that he cares deeply about you, that he loves you. Because I'll tell you, the worst time to work that out is when you are in the midst of suffering. That is the absolute worst place to work out the goodness of God. Because what will happen is you will begin to ask questions. Why did you let this happen? How could you do this? And that will begin to chip away and eat away at the belief that you have and the doubts will begin to flow deeply into your hearts. And so now, today, is the time to settle this reality that God is good. So open up your Bibles and see how he reveals himself. He is a good God who is faithful, who is patient and loving. He bears with us despite the fact that we will run away from him. He doesn't just wait for us to come back. He chases after us. He loves us. He is a good God. And so I encourage you, to settle this reality in your hearts today and in days that follow. Third, glory remains. If you think about this story of Lazarus, you think about the days and the weeks and the months and and years. We don't know how long Lazarus lived after this, but the time that followed, what do you think people remember about this story? Do you think primarily they focus on all of the weeping that happened, like the big sob fest that I described in the the first half of those verses? Or do you think that they, they remember Lazarus walking out of the grave, Jesus calling to him and Lazarus coming to him and the glory that's contained in that. And then as they see and remember glory, the joy that is attached with their beloved Lazarus coming to them and they get more time with him. I, th- I think probably what they remember is the glory. That that's the greatest impression that is left upon their hearts as they think about this story. Now, their weeping that they experienced is legitimate. Sin wreaks havoc in this world. Life is hard. We all know this. Their weeping was legitimate. Their grief was legitimate. Jesus was grieving, but not to the extent that we talked about earlier, that it is without hope. Jesus never minimizes their grief, but he also doesn't want to overstate it as well. Because as legitimate as weeping and grief is, so is healing. So is the healing that Jesus brings. And I I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but when you walk through really dark times, really sad times, tragic times, it, it can be hard to move on from a really traumatic experience because at times it can feel to us as though we're betraying the person who either died or suffered in some capacity. And so for us to find healing from whatever that pain was or the grief was, it's almost as though we're betraying them. Like we need to hold on to that. We need to feel that. But I think Jesus wants to bring redemption. He wants to bring healing to that. And it's never to diminish 
what was experienced. Healing doesn't diminish the sufferer or the suffering in any way. Rather, it displays the glory of the healing. It was that bad. It was that bad. And Jesus took it and he worked this glory. He worked this good. So his healing is meant to be experienced, but it doesn't diminish, or it's not to the detriment of the sufferer or the suffering. Weeping comes. Weeping comes, but only for a moment. And that moment, it might be weeks, months, it could be the rest of our lives, but even in the scope of eternity, the rest of our lives will be but just a moment. So weeping will come. And it will look differently for us, but it will only last for a moment. Glory will remain. Lastly, our call to belief. There will be days when we will doubt God's goodness. And we have to understand that these are lies being whispered by Satan to us, telling us that God is not good, that God does not care. There will be heartache and there will be weeping in our future. And we must know and believe that God weeps with us and that he draws near to us. Death is going to sting us. But praise be to God that death will not ever overcome us. Death is not the victor. Jesus is the victor. Jesus has conquered death. So the call for us is to hope in the one who has conquered everything. Everything. Trust in him. Believe in Jesus so that in the last day and today you can see and you can experience his glory. And, and even in those moments when you feel that unbelief, be like that father in Mark 9 who says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Let Jesus give you the faith that you can't conjure up on your own. Let him be everything to you. Absolutely everything. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you never leave us and that you never forsake us. Thank you that you love us deeply. Thank you that you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death as we walk through that. Thank you that we can know that no matter what we might feel, that you will never leave us on an island by ourselves. That spiritually speaking, you will always be with us. And God, I pray for us as a corporate church this morning and as individuals that we would know that, that we would believe that, that we would see you as good today and all the days of our lives, that we would not listen to the lies of Satan, that we would not let him put chinks in our armor, but we would be rock solid in the fact, knowing that, that you have revealed yourself in this way. You are good. You will not leave us. You will walk with us. You will weep with us. You will be there. So God, help us to see you
for who you are. Help us to trust you as you have revealed yourself. And in this, God, may we see glory. May we know joy, even in the midst of heartache. May we know joy because we are a people who have hope, who can grieve, but who will always have hope. In your great name, I pray. Amen. You guys want to stand with us? We'll sing in response. If anyone